Amen, church. Thank you, Becky. Good morning, church family. It's good to see you. You have probably seen me many times up here leading you in worship through singing and music, and today I believe I'm doing exactly the same thing. I'm leading you in worship through the Word of God. My name is Jonathan Jerez, and I'm the worship pastor here at Wheaton Bible Church, and I oversee our worship services and our different worship teams, and I've, it's been such a, pr- a privilege for me to serve alongside and with so many people here every week that love the Lord, that love his glory in the church, that love his word, that love the gospel, uh, that love people, that love, have an incredible heart for worship, and that love this church, love you. Um, and it's been a joy for me to serve with them Today, we are going to talk about worship. It's a, it's a pleasure for me, a joy to be able to speak God's word and share it with you. We're going to talk about worship. In John 4, the Apostle John says, or Jesus says, that God is in the business of seeking worshipers. That is what the Father is doing. Pastor John Piper once wrote, missions exist because worship doesn't. And I believe that that is true. But I believe that that is true not only about missions. I believe that's true about absolutely everything in the world. We exist, and everything we are and do is because of worship. I believe this book is all about worship. We preach, we give, we serve We evangelize, we do missions, we do outreach, we do small groups, we build relationships. All of those things, ultimately, because of worship. We want to be worshipers, and we want to seek more worshipers for our God. And there is so much that we can say about worship. There's so many places in the Bible to go to. It is a very broad and complex biblical doctrine One that, as we know, unfortunately, many times has been cause of great and unnecessary division and quarreling among God's people. Entire denominations, friends, families, congregations divide over their understanding of worship. But if you see the life of Jesus, and particularly in his conversation with the woman at the well in John 4... She was focused all on the how-tos, the where, the when, the how, and yet Jesus comes to her and to us to show us what kind of worship the Father is truly seeking. So today, we're not going to focus on how-tos. Today, I want to, with you, establish what I believe is the most foundational, the most central thing about our worship, and that is our overflowing pleasure in the glory of God in Jesus Christ. I am convinced that if we as a church come to a good understanding of this and we live that out, we will stand on solid biblical theological grounds and a good foundation to then address practical things about worship in the future. 
Today I've chosen Psalm 96, and I believe that that psalm captures the heart of worship. And it's been key in my understanding and experience of worship, and I want to focus there on verses 7 to 9. And here's where we're going. I'm going to give you four points, and then we're going to walk through those together. Number one, the essence of worship. Number two, why we worship. Number three, sin and the corruption of worship. Number four, the gospel and the restoration of true worship. Pray with me. Father, thank you that you are seeking. You are the one who through your son came after us. You are seeking worshipers. You have made us worshipers. And you won't let us go. So I pray that as we open your word this morning that you would open our eyes and our hearts to the beauty, the wonders, the treasures, the glory of Jesus. And that I would speak as one who speaks the word of God and not my own. And that your word would fall in good soil and bear fruit. For the glory of your name, change us. Meet with us. Encounter us through your word. By the Spirit, we pray in your name. Amen. Amen. Well, let's look at our first point, the essence of worship. What is worship? But before we go there, let's start with our text. Verses 1 through 3 are an exhortation to express worship and demonstrate worship to the Lord through singing. And we just did that together as a church. And that's not just something cool that we do. We are commanded in the Bible to sing to the Lord as a fitting response, a fitting expression of worship to Him. Psalm 34, 1, one of my favorite called to worship, is I will extol the Lord at all times, and His praise will always be on my lips. Notice the phrases, at all times, and on my lips, always. We are a people made for this. And although we know that singing and music are not synonymous to worship, it is evident in the Bible that God has given it a prominent place as an instrument, an avenue, a means through which his people express worship, especially as a community through all seasons of life. Think of the people of Israel when they left Egypt, when God brought them out of Egypt and they crossed to the other side. The first thing they did was they sang a song together the largest book of the Bible that we're seeing today. It's actually five books put together in one, a collection of songs, worship songs. Jesus, his last night with his disciples in the upper room, says before he went out to die, he sang a hymn with them. Paul and Silas, when they were in prison, they spent what could have been the last couple of hours of their lives, and they decided they wanted to sing to the Lord. And then we get to the book of Revelation, chapter 5, and we get to see worship around the throne. And again, what do we find? A song to the one who's on the throne and to the Lamb. God's people are a singing people. And that's why, verse 1, sing to the Lord. Wheaton Bible Church, sing to the Lord. Open your mouth and sing to Him. Offer Him a new song. Sing to the Lord, all the earth. Sing to the Lord. Praise His name. 
It's a new song every day. He is worthy. All the earth, everybody, sing to the Lord. Praise his name. Now, I want us to see that the psalm doesn't just exhort us to sing and worship the Lord, but it tells us why we ought to sing and worship him. That's verse 4 starts with the word for or because, which means he gives us the grounds, the reason for this exuberant expression of worship to the Lord through singing. And it says the reason is great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. Great are you, Lord, we just sang, and most worthy of praise. He is to be feared above all gods. His greatness, his worthiness is what we've come to know and is the reason we sing to him. We have seen the splendor and the majesty that are before him in verse 6. His greatness, surpassing greatness, means that he is supreme and he is infinitely superior to everything and everyone else. There is no one like him. God is truly the best in every way. And his most worthiness means it implies that who he is, what he is like. And everything that God does demands, it calls for, it inspires a response from all those who see him one way or another. Now, so far, this is only the outward aspect of worship, the fruit of worship, if you will, what we can see and hear. But we know from the Bible that worship is always first an internal experience and disposition of our hearts before it becomes an external act or expression. God has made it clear that he has no interest in mere external religious acts that are not flowing from a heart in genuine love and affections for him. And this is why Jesus, in Matthew 15, quoting Isaiah, says, You hypocrites! Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain, and their teachings are merely human rules. Notice that the problem is the disconnect between what they do, their acts of worship, as good as they were, and their hearts. Church, there will always be, always, a sequential connection between the genuineness of our worship response and our real internal personal and relational knowledge and encounter with the reality of God's surpassing greatness and infinite worth. Always. In other words, how genuine our worship is, how deep and how high it goes will always be directly correspondent to how much we value God in our hearts. Always. It's not how loud we can be, though he deserves it. It's how much we value him. That's the heart of it. Singer-songwriter Paul Balash says, we can't fake corporately what we don't foster privately. God wants our hearts. He wants us. Now notice the phrase, ascribe 
to the Lord. That's one of my favorite uh, phrases here in this psalm. Ascribe to the Lord. Three times we are called to do this. Ascribe to the Lord, verses 7 to 8. The word ascribe can also be translated as give to the Lord, pay to the Lord, attribute to the Lord. Recognize something about him and then give it to him. Remember verse 4, he is great. See his greatness and then his worthiness. He is most worthy of praise. He deserves praise. It is due his name. So verses 7 to 9, we see ascribe, ascribe, ascribe. And then there's this word, worship. Ascribe to the Lord, ascribe to the Lord, ascribe to the Lord. Worship the Lord. I believe those are two different ways of saying exactly the same thing. In other words, to worship the Lord is to ascribe to him everything that he deserves. Now I want to draw attention to the word glory in this psalm because it occurs four four times in these verses, 3, 6, 7, and 8. Whatever glory means, whatever that is, must be key to the psalmist and certainly very important to God because it's all over the Bible. Now, in the Bible, that word means the essence of God. Sometimes it means the the presence of God itself in all its fullness and all its weight. The overwhelming and supernatural manifestation of who he is, of the presence of God. His glory is the inseparable and undivided sum of all his qualities, of all his excellencies and all his attributes. So to know and to encounter the glory of God is to know and encounter the whole of God. It's like the, the actual meal, not the ingredients separately, but when it comes together in an inseparable, inseparable, undivided way, the whole of God, the fullness of God. So the glory of God is his fullness But that word can also be understood as the value of God. If it is the essence of God, the fullness of God, everything that he is can also be understood as his value, how much he is worth. And I think that's what it means, at least in part here in Psalm 96. So often when I read the word glory in the Bible, I read it as God's surpassing infinite value, who he is. That's what we're supposed to know. As we come to know it, then we are supposed to, we ought to ascribe it to him in our hearts. So with this in mind, I think we can answer the question then, what is the essence of worship? What is worship? Worship is the internal experience of the human heart that flows from ascribing supreme worth or value to something or someone resulting then in expressions of, or acts of adoration, love, praise, reverence, submission, and obedience. And I think precisely because of this understanding of worship is that the Apostle Paul said to the Philippians, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. Whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. I consider everything a loss because of, and here it is, the surpassing worth of knowing 
Christ Jesus. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Then I love this other phrase. I want to know Christ. I want to know Christ. He knew the surpassing greatness and infinite worth of Jesus, and he wanted more. Nothing, no one else got even close to it, not even his own life. So the question is, do you know Jesus? Have you come to know Jesus? Do you see his surpassing greatness? Do you know his infinite value? Or to use the words from Psalm 96, do you know the glory of God? How much is he worth to you? That brings me to point number two. If this is what worship is and we're supposed to do this, I want to ask why? Why are we this way? And this is not where I give you a few points or steps or a to-do list for you to follow to become a better worshiper. This is not a do better, try harder kind of thing. Worship is really a miracle. It is truly a miracle. We are actually not, we don't need to be called to worship. We are worshipers. We are worshiping 24-7. Everyone around the world right now is worshiping. Worship is not just a Christian activity. It is a human one. Everybody does this. And isn't that what we do with this, for example? I think probably all of us have one. We love technology. We're obsessed with it. We love social media. We love our email accounts. And this thing has everything in there. And we're willing to get into debt and go into monthly plans, whatever we need to do to get one of these things. And then it comes out, we pay, and then we need the other one. And we do this over and over and over and over again. And not just with technology, but with work, our careers, money, social status, reputation, our ethnicity and background and our identity, the American dream, sports, marriage, kids, even singleness, freedom, rights, politics, all of that. Just look at where most of our energy, our time, our thoughts, and our money go. That will tell us where our ascribing worth is going. Jesus said it this way, where your heart is, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So in a sense, Psalm 96 is not a call to worship. It's a call to worship the Lord. <laughs> it is a call for us to reorient, to redirect our worship to the proper place. And here's why. God made us that way. God made us for pleasure. He made us for joy and satisfaction. God made us for God. But in the beginning, if you notice, if you read in the Bible, you know that God didn't just give us God, but he gave us God and every good and perfect gift that flows from him to enjoy 
and to experience pleasure in them. Have you ever asked yourself why? If we are supposed to love God and keep our affections in him, then why did he make the world the way he did? Why did he overflow creation with legitimate pleasures and said, it's all yours. Go, be fruitful, multiply, enjoy, subdue the earth. It's yours. Every plant for food, animal for uh, ruling over them. It's yours. Why did he do that? Look at creation and you will realize, just go outside. Go hiking. I've never been. Go do it and, and see that he really, really overdid it. <laughs> he didn't stop at good enough. He didn't give us just what was necessary for us to live with him and worship him. He went overboard. <laughs> he made so much. He overfilled the cup with glory and beauty and wonder. All of this out of his joy in himself and overflow of goodness towards us. The creation account shows us not only that he is powerful enough to make everything from nothing, but that he loves and gives so much and overflows so much that he took the time and intentionality to make it all beautiful. And then he entrusted it to us. His creation is a work of art. The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork, says Psalm 19, verse 1. And look at our text, Psalm 96, verses 11 to 13. Let the heavens rejoice, let the earth be glad, let the sea resound and all that is in it. Let the fields be jubilant and everything in them. Let the trees and the forests sing for joy. Let all creation rejoice before the Lord. It is all his for pleasure. He loves it. They rejoice and they worship him. And there is so much in this world that we can't see, that we will never even know. Just think of the bottom of the sea. There's so much that we don't know. And then that's just this world, but then think that there's this thing out there called universe. Overflowing with things that it's not just that we can't see them, it's that we will never even know they existed. Have you ever asked yourself why? The answer is God. <laughs> he just loves it. That's who he is. He overflows. He enjoys it. He delights. He gives. And he takes pleasure in it. I believe everything that we do know and see and that he has given us, he's done it as an invitation to us. He wants us to love it and enjoy it with him, to experience pleasure not only directly in him, but in him through the things that he has given us. They are meant to be received with gladness and gratefulness out of love for the giver and to increase our enjoyment of the relationship we have with him. Everything you are, everything you have, everything you see and you know exists for this purpose. To know and ascribe glory to God. To enjoy Him and enjoy Him through those things. John Calvin said, There is not one blade of grass, there is no color 
in this world that is not intended to make us rejoice. He also made us in his own image after his likeness, which means that he wanted us to be like him and share in his creative and overflowing nature. And that is why we are the way we are as humans. And so we keep creating, we keep inventing, we keep discovering and making use of all kinds of things to express our enjoyment of God through our God-given faculties and gifts or simply to reflect him because we are like him. And this is the overflow of his image in us. And that's why we do this. All of this. <laughs> that's why we often express worship in creative and artistic ways as a community. And by doing so, we reflect the one who made us. We reflect the God of Psalm 19, of Psalm 8. Oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic are your works in all the earth. We reflect him. And that is why you look at history and societies, and especially the church, they always use creative arts to express uh, things and ideas and to communicate ideas. Things like different musical expressions and instruments and dancing and painting and sculpture and wall inscriptions, aesthetics, architecture, uh, stained glass, cathedrals, murals, and many more things throughout history all to express and communicate ideas and their experience of this world with or without God because we are made like Him. And so that is the reason we do everything we do and celebrate all the different expressions that we have here as a church in worship. Let me just tell you, nothing that we do or use here is a marketing tool. The minute we do that and see it that way, we spoil it. We ruin it. Nothing is a marketing tool to attract, to appeal, or to please anybody here. <laughs> These things are the overflow of our life and our joy in God by the Spirit. This is the overflow of His image in us. So we celebrate all the different ways and all the different things through which we are able to display that overflow as a church in many, many different ways. Now, that all sounds wonderful until we get to point three. And we are hit in the face with the reality of the fall and sin where our worship was corrupted and distorted. What about idolatry? What about worldliness? And we are, aware, uh, we are well aware of the dangers of this world and its pleasures and the catastrophic effects of loving the things of the world. The Bible is full of warnings against this, and we must pay attention to them. We don't live in the garden anymore, and our disposition of heart is no longer to enjoy God and His gifts in legitimate ways. Sin entered the world through our disobedience. Unbelief, idolatry, and ungratefulness have now ruined our ability to experience pleasure the way we were made to. That's why Romans 1 reminds us that for although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him, but exchanged the glory of the immortal God 
for images. Now notice that the problem in Romans 1 is not that we find pleasure in legitimate things that God has given us, but that we ignore the giver, we don't glorify him, and we don't even give him thanks for them. We now replace the giver, our maker, with everything else. And our natural inclination is not to desire the gifts apart from and in place of the giver. And that is the heart of idolatry. Idolatry is not enjoying things too much or taking too much pleasure in legitimate things, but in wanting those things apart from or in place of the giver. That's why Paul told, told Timothy, everything is to be received if it is done with thanksgiving. And that's why C.S. Lewis once said, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak because our sin makes us settle for that which was meant to be a means, an avenue to a greater satisfaction that can only be found in connection with God. So now because of our sin, we have three problems when it comes to our pleasure in worship and all these things. One, we ascribe value, worth, glory to things that we shouldn't, and those are sinful things, <laughs> things that are off-limit, things that will kill us, things God has said no to. And that's why Psalm 96 verse 5 says, For all the gods of the nations are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. And that nations is not people out there, that's us. Our idols are worthless, useless, empty. Number two, our hearts ascribe disproportionate worth, value, glory to legitimate pleasures, but that aren't worthy of supreme love. And you can put there God's good gifts. Work, marriage, kids, food, recreation, provision, and all of the above. And three, perhaps the, the worst of all, we don't find God worthy of supreme worth, value, or glory anymore. So we need a miracle. Now, thank God that that's not the end of the story. That he has not left us that he still loves and gifts. And we get to the gospel as the only answer for the restoration of true worship, our pleasure in God. It is through the gospel of Jesus Christ that we are reconciled to a relationship with God through repentance and faith. Now our sins are forgiven forever. And Jesus comes to take then our unbelief, our idolatry, our ungratefulness, and all our sin, and to give us perfect righteousness as a gift of grace. But here's the thing. The gospel is not only salvation from sin and death. The gospel is good news of salvation now for God, meaning we now have. God gives us new hearts and minds by the Spirit of God, what Paul calls the mind of Christ. New desires, new impulses, new disposition and inclinations, power 
from the Holy Spirit to live for the glory of God once more. We now have that because of the gospel. So we have new gospel lenses to be able to see God, to see reality, to see gifts, to see everything in the world, everything through God's perspective, through a God-centered perspective. The gospel doesn't only save us, but it restores our humanity. Jesus comes to show us what it means to be truly human. But he's not just an example. He's a savior, and he empowers us by the Spirit now to be like him and to delight in God. The gospel and its effect make our overflowing enjoyment of the glory of God possible again. It is in Jesus that we see and come to know the glory of God that we're supposed to know and ascribe to the Lord, His worth, who He is, what He is like. It is in Him that we fully behold and understand the fullness of God. Listen to 2 Corinthians 4, 6, our experience of the gospel Paul says, for God who said, let, there, let light shine out of darkness in the beginning, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. It is in him that we come to know the fullness of God, the glory of God. And I love how Colossians 1 says it. It says that the Son Jesus is the image of the invisible God, for God was pleased to have all his fullness, all his glory, all his perfections, everything about him dwell in him. Hebrews 1 verse 3 says that the Son is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact representation. Other translations say the exact imprint of God. They have the same fingerprint. That's Jesus. So you want to know, you want to see the glory of God? Look for it in Jesus. You want to know the surpassing greatness of the Lord and his infinite worth? Look for it in Jesus. Because Jesus is the glory of God. Open his word. Spend time with him. Ask him to open his, your eyes and to give, us, to give you taste <laughs> for him, for his presence, for who he is, to love him. This is why our worship must be centered around and all about Jesus. Our worship is never about our musical style, is never about our language, not about our ethnic or cultural background, not our church traditions, not our Christian family tree or heritage. It's not the way we dress to go to church. None of that gets even close to what worship is all about, as good as they might be. That's not the heart of worship. In the gospel, the life and death of Jesus Christ must be the center of our worship. 
its implications, effects, and benefits in this life and eternity ought to be our most passionate song, church. When we sing the gospel, they should hear it in Lake, Lake Michigan. That's our song. That's our only hope. Let's never believe anything else or make it about anything else or anyone else. Colossians 3.16, let the message of Christ, the gospel, dwell among you or in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with wisdom through psalms and hymns and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. So Wheaton Bible Church, sing a song to the Lord. Sing the gospel. Ascribe to him the glory due his name, his worth, his strength, his majesty and beauty, everything that he is. Give him the glory that he deserves. Don't be shy about it. It doesn't matter if you lose your composure. If you, everybody thinks you're crazy, it's Jesus we're talking about. <laughs> you remember that woman breaking the jar? It doesn't matter. Everybody was mad. Jesus loved it. He was pleased. Overflow with gratefulness. Overflow with love and passion for him. Make him known. Make him supreme in your affections. Come ready to our... Sometimes I don't, I don't want to sing. I need you. I need you to encourage me, even as a worship leader, to keep my eyes on him, to bring my affections to him, to remind me that he is worthy regardless of how my day went yesterday or this morning. We need each other. Let's make him supreme in our affections and also our expressions of worship. Who knows, maybe from time to time, our collective expression of worship, both in sound and expression, <laughs> might save our lives or our marriages, or our relationships with our kids, or our spiritual vitality. We need each other. So let's do that together. And as we conclude, let me remind you of these four things that are my prayer for us as we lay these foundation uh, for our church when it comes to worship. Let's ascribe the glory to the Lord. It is my desire that as a church we treasure and we value God and His glory above all else and that we live that out together. That God would have His supreme and rightful place in our hearts and our lives so that when we come together we offer Him a collective, undivided offering of devotion to Him with everything we are everything we have, and with everything we do to make it about him and his glory. Two, let's take pleasure. Let's overflow with pleasure in him and his gifts. Let's take delight in who he is and everything he has given us. Let's look to him through those things together because we are a family of people who have been given new hearts, new lenses, new taste buds, for pleasure in God and every gift that is flowing from Him. So may we be known as a church, as a place in our community that is contagious, that is happy, 
for gratefulness and immense generosity and creativity and sacrificial service because he is worthy. Three, let's help one another keep the main thing the main thing and to fight idolatry, both individually and as a church. This is why worshiping together is so important. The gathering of the saints, we see one another, we hear one another, we hug one another. I can see you, I can hear you. We teach one another. We need each other. We speak truth to one another. We encourage one another and we warn one another. Not there, that's not it. Don't do it there. Supreme value goes here. You will not be satisfied there. No, 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 it's not about that. That's not the thing. It's Jesus. Let's bring it back to him. It's Jesus and him alone. And four, let's be a church that celebrates the gospel in worship as our only hope to restore our pleasure in God. I believe if our church is going to be a gospel culture church, then we must be a people truly with the gospel at the heart of our worship. And I pray that our corporate worship is enabled and fueled by the amazing reality of the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That we worship like people who have been brought back to life, forgiven of all their sins, raised to life with Christ, who own every spiritual blessing, <laughs> that we come here collectively to overflow with praise and worship because we believe, we live, we love the gospel, that we love his presence together. He dwells in the praises, the worship of his people. He is here, even though we can't see him. Like Peter says, we love him. Let's make that obvious in this place that we love him and that we find fullness of joy and pleasure in him forever. Amen, church? Let me pray for us. God, we need you. <laughs> we need you to open our eyes to the glory, to the beauty, to the majesty, the wonders of Jesus, of your Son. You said, look to him. We want to look to him. But we can only do this if you open our eyes. So may that be true in this place, that this is a church that overflows with pleasure and joy for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.